5151 is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. It's Thursday evening and so the first movie night of 2022 is upon us on the slate this evening. The 355 starring Jessica Chastain, Diane Kruger, Lupita Nyong'o and Penelope Cruz in a spy caper which unites an unlikely group of women as they try to, you guessed it, save the world. Boiling Point is a one-take wonder starring the always watchable and always intense Stephen Graham as an under-pressure London chef enduring the dinner service of his nightmares. And the documentary Ailey tells the story of choreographic pioneer Alvin Ailey, whose groundbreaking work put American-African contemporary dance on the map. Well, those are the three movies that we will be talking about, the contemporary releases that we'll be talking about shortly. But before that, let's go back a bit in time. Then if you ain't my pa, I want my tuna dollars. Okay. I want my tuna dollars. I heard you through the door talking that man. It's my money you got and I want it. Mm-hmm. You just hold on a second. I want my money. You took my tuna dollars. Will you quiet down? You hear? I want my tuna dollars. Hold on. Just hold on. Let me explain something to you. It ain't as if you was my pa, that'd be different. Well, I ain't your pa, so just get that out of your head. I don't care what those neighbor ladies said. I look like You that. don't look nothing like me. You don't look any more like me than... Then you do that Coney Island. Eat that damn thing, you hear? We got the same jaw. Lots of people got the same jaw. It's possible. No, no, it ain't possible. And I want my tuna dollars. All right. All right, maybe we got the same jaw. But same jaw don't mean same blood. I know a woman looks like a bullfrog, but that don't mean she's the damn thing's mother. You met my mom in a bar room. For God's sakes, child. You think everybody gets met in a bar room gets a baby? It's possible. Anything is possible, but possible don't make it true. And I want my money! Will you quiet down? You know what the trouble is with you? You've got no appreciation. All right. Maybe I did get a little money from that man. And you're entitled to that. But I'm entitled to my share for getting it for you, ain't I? And where do you think you'd be without me? You think them folks would spend a penny to send you east? No, sir. But who got you a ticket to St. Joe? Who got you a knee-high in a Coney Island? And threw in $20 extra. Not to mention 85 cents for that telegram. You wouldn't have had any of that without me. Now, I didn't have to take you, but I took you, didn't I? All right, I think that's fair enough. We're both a little better off. You get to St. Joe, I get myself a little better car. Fair is fair. Now, drink your knee-high and eat your Coney Island. want my $200. Tatum O'Neill and Ryan O'Neill there in a scene from Paper Moon. Ryan as Moses Prey, Tatum as Addie Ogans. One a con artist, the other a young girl who's the daughter of a woman who's just passed away. Set in the Midwest of the Depression era, Paper Moon was directed by Peter Bogdanovich and the death of Peter Bogdanovich was announced earlier today. Before we get into the the, uh, reviews then of the contemporary releases, Donald Clark, I suppose it is a film, it's Paper Moon, it's the last picture show, it's What's Up Doc. When we think of Peter Bogdanovich, is that what we're really going to remember and think about? I think inevitably that those are the films that we'll talk about when we talk about films. But I think the thing to remember about Peter Bogdanovich was he was so much more than that. In a sense, he had the archetypal career for a certain type of director who revolutionized Hollywood in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Or perhaps it'd be more accurate to say that he created that archetype or maybe moved it from France to the United States. He was a critic and a programmer. Uh, like Coppola and Scorsese, he had an encyclopedic knowledge of film uh, like those two directors early on he worked with the maestro of trash roger corman who's incidentally is still with us at 95 good luck to you roger um he made the brilliant targets for corman in 1968 
And then, as you say, he went on to a a, a blissful run of three films, the Fordian uh, moving um, uh, nostalgic The Last Picture Show, which spoke of a passing era, which was demonstrated him at his best in that in that it had enormous um, respect for classic golden era Hollywood, but was also stunningly new at that stage. It felt like a fresh new sort of film. Um, it was uh, Orson Welles who told him to shoot it in black and white, and that was you know unfashionable mm. then, and it became a, a great critical hit. Uh, then What's Up the Bit of Paper Moon, and then it all went a bit wrong. Um, after that, um, he separated from his wife and collaborator, Polly Platt, who had a lot to do with those films. Um, Daisy Miller in 74 was a flop. Uh, at Long Last Love was laughed at a ton. Then there was the awful tragedy um, of his girlfriend, Dorothy Stratton's murder in 1980. But he was a survivor. Um, he continued to write books. He made a few decent films. I met him a few times. And he was very entertaining. Mm. He was very proud of his impersonations. <laughs> if he was telling you a story about Cary Grant, he would insist upon doing all the Cary Grant quotes as Cary Grant. And similarly with John Ford. Uh, and was, it, was, he, was he right to be proud of them? Oh, I think so. Yes, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, he, I mean, he actually had a very distinguished career, and that includes the latter period. Although the films did not shine as much as they did in the late sixties and early nineteen seventies, I mean, he continued to do a lot of great work. He wrote great books. Um, his last notable achievement was probably um, supervising the assembly of Orson Welles' unfinished last film, The Other Side of the Wind, um, which you can yeah. find uh, on Netflix. It's a bit of a mess, but and he's, he's also in it, I should say. But who would be without it? Yeah, and, and, and it was very important too in terms of organising retrospectives for John Ford, Howard Hawkins and Alfred Hitchcock, uh, yeah. Hitchcock as well. But that is Peter Bogdanovich. We, we might talk about him later again in the programme. But let us turn our attention now to the films of 2022. Uh, Donald is with us, obviously, as is Gemma Cray. And as I said, uh, the 355 Boiling Point and Ailey are the three movies we'll be talk about, uh, talking about. We'll start with the 355 Um Give us the basic setup here. I suppose, Gemma, the stars are all female. Are they making a point here? Um, are, are they doing something new with the spy genre, if you like? Or are we seeing women playing men's roles or what might be thought of as men's roles? Um, I think the actual film itself sticks very, very neatly to the spy genre template and doesn't really veer off what you'd expect. I was, I, I kind of had said, you kind of play spy film bingo and, and, and you'd have a full house relatively quickly with with all the, the sort of cliches you'd expect to see in a film like this. There's, a, it, meanwhile, at the same time, it's not like their characters are just flipped from male to female. Like they're mm. very distinctively written, well-rounded, have good intricate relationships that are, are kind of are complex within the group dynamic and then within their their home lives as well. So, um, but the setup is is totally what you would expect from yeah. a, a spy thriller. Like we're we're talking about uh, city hopping chases, a doomsday device, like everything that yeah. that you'd kind of satisfactory as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and quite a quite a stellar cast really that we have here, uh, Donald, in, in terms of um, yeah, Jessica Chastain, Diane Kruger is there, Penelope Cruz is there, Lupita Nyong'o. It, is a st- it really is quite a cast of actors. Uh, two Oscar winners there, a few nominees. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> Look, uh, 
this was certainly not the intent, but the unveiling of plans for the 355 at Cannes in 2018, I mean, to me, just suggested those cheesy action flicks like the Wild Geese and the Sea Wolves in the 70s, the ones where Richard Harris and Richard Burton would take time off for lowering the EC wine lake to fire blanks on rugged cliff faces. In the sense, I mean, that's a little unfair. This is a better film than oh. those films, or is it? But the films exist just because the stars agreed to appear in them, which is never a good way to launch a project. Um, this film exists because Jessica Chastain, Bang Bang Bing, Vijay Nyong'o, Penelope Cruz, and initially Marion Cotillard um, uh, turned up to Cannes and said, we want to be in this film. We want to uh, uh, do the sort of films that uh, men have been doing for forever. Not one thing I would say, men aren't really doing these films anymore. <laughs> I mean, if they are doing them, they're doing them for Netflix. Yeah. Um, but we're in a situation now where, given the old Fast and Furious film, which is actually kind of multiracial and multigender, Fast and Furious, there are plenty of female characters in that, you don't actually see that many films like this anymore starring women. Right. But it was the actors um, who addressed right. the media and Corsette. It was them who made this happen. Nobody is going to this film to hear about the hunt for a digital MacGuffin that can blow, blow up the world. Um, they go because these actors were yeah. there, and that's not enough. They right. have not come up with an, with another good reason to see this film. Well, let's listen to two two of those actors in the, in this clip. Lupita Nyong'o as Khadija intervenes as the peacemaker between Jessica Chastain's Miss and Diane Kruger's Marie. Pull the trigger, kill each other. Listen, I get it. You keep botching each other's ops. I'd be pissed off too, but the only way we're going to accomplish anything is if we join forces. Are you crazy? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. We have a common enemy. I'm just suggesting you lower the guns long enough for us to sort this out and get on with it. Who are you? Khadija, MI6. Marie, you've met me. How do you know my name? We're spies, asshole. There we go, Lupita Nyong'o, Jessica Chastain, and Diane Kruger in a scene there from the three five five. That is, uh, that's three of them getting together. It takes them a long time, you know. Look, you're all going to get together and, and join forces. It takes them a long time to do that, Donald. It really does. And help me out here. Um, in the trailer, they mention what the three five five means right at the top and talk us through this history of a spy in the American War of Independence, I think. Mm. Am I right in saying that, that that information does not appear here until a parenthetical mention right at the end? Uh, I, I don't actually know because I didn't get <laughs> I, I didn't get to the very end of the film yet. Uh, I'm, I'm still about, I'm about an hour and a half in. And I understand that. Gemma, can, Gemma, can you tell us? Yeah, no, it is just mentioned kind of like as an afterthought <laughs> at the end. <laughs> just to explain Gemma, it. They don't even say we're called the 355, do they? No. Like, in the trailer, yeah. they, give, they give the impression that they are the 355, that they've named themselves after the spy from the American War of Independence. But they don't say yeah. that here. It's a weird title which gets thrown away in what sounds like a hasty rewrite. So in terms of the characters that we do get, Gemma, uh, do they rise beyond being simply types? I think I think that's the thing that this film does manage to get um, authentically right. So we have um, Khadija, who you mentioned, who's sort of given up the rat race of espionage um, to kind of settle down and um, be an academic and, and, and talk at um, and, and kind of like she's a, a cybersecurity specialist. So she's focusing on that now and, and has given up the rat race. And I do think that is... 
um, sort of a more realistic way. Another thing that they do that's quite funny is the reverse fridging. So at the beginning... Um, Explain fridging to us. Oh, so, so fridging <laughs> is um, when a, a female character gets um, injured, raped or killed um, or depowered in some way to, to kind of prolong the male protagonist's uh, mm. motivation. And they, they do that at the beginning. They kind of kill off or... Um, like various char- male characters in order to uh, set up the the story for the, the 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 women that are that are eventually going on this big mission, which is which is sort of a refreshing reversal, but it is just a pure reversal. Yeah, I would say to him as well. But what I also quite liked, which goes to what you're talking about, is that there was this interesting thing where. You know the terrible wife parts you get. You've got in action films, well, forever, basically for a hundred years in Hollywood cinema, but particularly in action films, the eighties and nineties, often played by Anne Archer, people like that, who go, "Oh, don't leave me here alone when you're off fighting crime." They have a few kind of like terrible husband parts in this, which yeah. I liked. I thought, fair enough, you know. Yeah, but they're also uh, terrible, terrible wife parts, and that were almost worth accidental satire. Yeah, but but the, the dude need then to have in I wasn't sure why they needed to do this with Penelope Cruz. So the the, the three women the Jessica Chastain, Lupita Nyong'o and Diane Kruger, they're they're married to their careers. They're very happy to be spies. But let's listen to a clip featuring Penelope Cruz uh, and and how they were trying to persuade her who's not a who's not a spy, we think at any rate when we meet her first. Um, and this is how they try to persuade her to get involved in the action. Come on, let's go. Oh, no, I'm not going with you. I'm going home. But we can't do this without your fingerprints. That is not my problem. Oh, it is if you want to keep them attached to your body. I'm sorry, I have a family. I'm not an agent, I'm a therapist. And this is really not for me. All right, Graziella, we're the only ones who can prevent that from happening. Sorry. Okay, how about this? Those same guys are out there right now looking for you. You go home, you bring them with you. Graziella, we really need your help. But more importantly, you need ours. There you go, Penelope Cruz and Jessica Chastain trying to persuade her in that uh, clip from the 355. So does it work overall, Gemma, and stars from you? Um, I thought it was simple, fun and well-paced and there was just enough meat in it to keep you going for the two uh, hours. So uh, three, and a, three, three and a half stars. Three and a half. What are you saying overall, Donald? I'm much less generous. Um, I, I thought I said only existed because the stars were, were, were prepared to do it. Uh, I would I would say that in terms of who comes out of it best, I think oddly Diane Kruger comes out of it best, I thought, who actually replaced Marion Cotillard. She seems most comfortable with the action scenes. Uh, and I think Pearl Penelope Cruz, I think you're is set up for a comic role. Mm. Um, which she does, which she could do very well. She's got, she's, a, she's a great comic timing, but then it doesn't develop. She just kind of ends up sitting at the corner of the scene weeping. Um, so no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick with two. Sticking with two. Let's move on then to Boiling Point from director Philip Barantini. Film was shot in one take. Brings us through an eventful dinner service at the busy London re- at a busy London restaurant. Stars Stephen Graham as a chef under pressure, no matter where he turns. Um, Chef Andy is the part played by Stephen Graham here. He's under pressure from all types of angles and we're used to seeing Stephen Graham in that type of setup. It's an unusual world, though, for Stephen Graham to be in, I thought, Gemma. 
Um, I don't know. He brings his own kind of special bottled intensity to literally anything that he could do. If he was yeah. working in a garage, he would yeah. sell those Snickers bars with with fierce intensity. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he's the head chef and he's um, pushed to the brink. When we meet him, he's on an emotional phone call to his son and his strange partner and he arrives into work to a fairly unsuccessful food safety inspection. And I think as you're watching um, this, you realise... The, the filmmaker or writer or both of this has worked in the industry because it's just dripping with these beautiful gleaming details um, and and truthfulness and authenticity about about the various stresses that people do. So this um, is a very kind of intense food safety inspection and it's clear from the outset that Andy Jones has sort of let the side down. Um, he hasn't kind of completed his paperwork and starts off with two staff missing, food shortages, and it only goes downhill from there. And the one long take aspect of things here, we've got lots of handheld camera and a real improvisatory feel to to lots of the dialogue going on. It's always the initial question, isn't it, around something like this, Donald? Is it a gimmick or does it yeah. add something? Does it give something to the telling of the story? That's a fair question, I think. I mean, you know, uh, Eisenstein um, perfected montage a hundred years ago. Why, why have we abandoned the advantages that that um, that technique gives a filmmaker? Uh, so yes, I think if you're talking about a genuine single take feature like this, or even a pseudo um, uh, single take feature like, for example, Sam Mendes in seven, 1917, I think it's reasonable to ask: Is this not just a gimmick? I think here it's not. I think they make a good case for. It's not a genre, is it? You can't really call it a genre, but for the technique, shall we say. Um, in that, you get a real sense of the frantic stress that underlies such operations. I mean, that comes from the fact that we're in real time as much as anything else. But having it a single take really emphasizes the fact that it is real time. I think the moment you cut, you think, are we still in real time? Have we moved back a second yeah. or forward a second or whatever? And that, I think, is um, it, that really does get across. Now, I think there are some issues. There are always some issues with this approach. I mean, I can live with... Uh, some of the lighting issues. So you move from really sharp kitchen shots to underlit restaurant and then to positively sepulchral uh, exterior at one point. Um, that's okay. I can live with that. More nagging, and this often happens with these films, is sense that a little too much is happening in too narrow a time. So what I mean by that is that um, uh, Andy is stressed by the arrival of a celebrity chef, but by Jason Fleming, who we should mention is the villain, also in 355. Mm. Um He's in dispute over parenting. A health inspector, it's impossible not to think of faulty towers in that scene, is here to knock a few points off their rating. And one particularly implausible moment where I thought, no, you could, I mean, honestly, you could you could actually rewrite this so, so, this, so that the story works out in, 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 slower. Is it, they phone an ambulance and the ambulance arrives in what seems like two minutes. You know, there's a, there's a mm. crisis which will spoil. They phone an ambulance and it's there. And that's like, well, but anyway. Basically, I'm going to say no matter. Yeah. I, it doesn't really matter to me. Those are kind of like pedantic observations that I've made because in my head I'm thinking, should this be a one-take film? Does it justify it? But the careering nature of the filmmaking really, I mean, to be honest, gives you all this little time to, pot, to ponder that overstuff right. uh, plotting. Yeah. Uh, screenplay, a lot to say about the chaos that sits behind all ordered workplaces. And in particular, I really like the fact that one of the messages of this film is that the general public are awful. Yeah, the customers um, are pretty, anybody... pretty nice. Let's have a listen to, let's have a listen to a clip from Boiling Point. Um, and if, if, things are going bad for various reasons in the restaurant. But the biggest problem that he has at this moment in time is that his old boss, Alistair, played by Jason Fleming, shows up with a restaurant critic called Sarah, played by Lord Faber. And... Um, he, immediately, he, he's going, well, why didn't you tell me you were coming? Just Mate, 
cook well, whatever you want. Well, if I'd known you was coming, do you know what I mean? I'd have made sure. When did Mate, you we're the good guys. The good guys. When did you book? Uh, the book is coming in, what's it, uh, February, the February 23rd, 24th. No, 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 not when, not when, when did you book, when did, when did you book to come here? Sorry. Uh, we booked two days ago, but I phoned you and texted you and you didn't get back, but sorry. It's cool, it's fine. But we listen, we're here to support you. Yes, and right? um, you know, just, you don't need my endorsement, so don't worry about that. Great, have a little, have a little Such look a buzz in this place. It's yeah, great. no, it's, you know, it's busy. Huh? It's busy tonight. Yeah, very busy. I'm busy. Yeah, super busy with the uh, TV stuff and everything. It's gone mental. But, I mean, yeah, it's been amazing. I mean, the show's rocketing. Yeah, I saw one episode. Not the only one that saw one episode. There's seven million, seven million people watch it, so, you know, full series. <laughs> Must be doing something right. Yeah, no. This menu is, 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 I could, I recognise all of this stuff. I mean, this is, this is, this is all my dishes. I mean, I love the way it's on a bit of paper, but there's the, uh, the duck with the soy. Yeah, that was my dish. Stephen Graham there in a scene from, uh, Boiling point, the second of our three films this evening. Uh, Gemma, it is it is very much depends on this ensemble improvisatory feel that we got we got a sense of in that clip. Did anybody stand out for you and stars? Um, I thought all the cast. Um, considering that this was one take, mm. every every even bit character, every small character had a relationship with every single other small character, and you got a sense of that. Like it is an insular world, but it it's so well realized. Um, I, I I thought again, even the smallest of actors deserved a, a role. Even Lord, as um, she had, she was like a tiny little role in that, but she was fully rounded and had like a little mini arc. So I I actually thought this was uh, the the best film of the night. Um, I'm actually giving it four and a half stars, and a, a very intense. And for anyone, a, a trigger warning for anyone who's ever worked in customer service or probably in a restaurant, because it'll bring back. To, traumatic memories. All right. And stars finally from you, uh, uh, Donald. I agree. Cast is excellent. Vanette Robinson is particularly good as a sous chef. Also, it's a very interesting point which the the screenplay completely swivels around your attitude towards one character, I think is very interesting. And uh, I won't say any more than that, but you you think something Mm. of that character swivels around and you think something entirely different, which is very good writing. Uh, I'm giving it a healthy four. A healthy four. Let's move on then to Ailey, um, new documentary from Jamila Wignott. Uh, about the man behind the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theatre, visionary choreographer whose goal was to express the African-American experience through contemporary dance. Just give us uh, uh, the context of Alvin Ailey, who he was and what he achieved in his choreographic life, Gemma. Um, So he was um, deeply renowned. He was a man who was born in Texas in the 1930s um, under Jim Crow laws um, to a a single mother. He moved to um, New York, I think in 1954, and and started working there as a a dancer. So he was a black queer man. The, the, The stacks for totally stacked the odds were totally stacked against him and he made um, he started his own dance company in 1958 and in 1960 he wrote um, his seminal piece uh, Revelations which is a modern um, dance classic that's mm. still performed to this day that toured the world that um, put him on the map that put modern dance on the map and really really told the story of um, the black experience in, in rural America mm. um, in, in a way that that 
the humanity is undeniable at a time when civil rights were <laughs> yeah. were a huge issue. Um, so, and, like, and we see archive clips of several different 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 performances, including um, of of revelations, and and that's how the documentary is kind of told to us, Donald. We have at, at one level this archive material. And we have talking heads, former members of the dance company, but we also have a, a contemporary, a, a present day moment of a, a, a piece, an homage piece that's been made yeah. to Alvin Ailey. It, it kind of, it's a, an unusual way to tell the documentary story. We do. I mean, yes, we have that. And also we have contemporary uh, interviews who um, editorialise on his role. And um, mm. they don't, it's not, not a hagiography. They offer some criticism of him. Um, I was divided. I mean, I, it's always a treat to have your eyes opened about a cultural figure about whom you know something, but not enough. Um, and I knew a bit uh, about him, but not an enormous amount. Um, so I was delighted to have many of those gaps filled out, even though it is, as we said, quite a conventionally structured documentary. It does have this modern section with with a dance being organised in his style and tribute to him. But mostly it's archival footage and talking heads. And his own interviews, uh, Eddie's own interviews, serve as a kind of semi-official narration. Yeah. He's sort of this sort of semi-voiceover in that sense. Yet, there's so much missing here. That was my feeling. I, that may be because she has kept the film economically short, which is yes. never a bad thing. But I really wanted to hear about the mechanics of the art. What techniques did he pioneer? I mean, in terms of the actual right. choreography. So and overall, then you, you feel, feel as if you wanted more, which is you know, maybe is a good I thing. Did, How does that, what, what does that mean in terms of stars from you, Donald? Well, I wanted more Laura Nairo. That's what I say. The brief bit of Laura Nairo. Tell me more about the Laura Nairo collaboration. Um, I'm going to give it, only give it three, I have to say, which I feel a bit mean about, but I, I did think it left too many gaps. And what did you think, Gemma? Um, I actually thought that there was a, a beautiful pace to it. I completely agree that there was so much missing. Like, he, he was such a fascinating figure, but he was also a deeply private man, so I wonder, was it hard mm. to, to gather stuff? But... I don't know. I, I give it three and a half because I actually think in, in itself it's it's a beautiful um, piece of editing. Of, of It's a beautiful kind of compilation. There's a gorgeous flow to it. So yeah. I think yeah. that that's probably bumped it up a little for me. Yeah, so three and a half you're saying there overall, Gemma, and certainly some great archive material in there just to see the dances themselves. That's uh, Gemma Cray and Donald Clark there speaking to us about the 355, which goes on general release in cinemas tomorrow. Boiling Point will be at the Lighthouse in Dublin and the Palos in Galway. And Ailey is released on demand and tomorrow. And now a discussion for all cat lovers and first a clip from the recent film starring Benedict Cumberbatch The Electric Life of Louis Wayne. Every cat fancier knows puss loves nothing more than to sit on a piece of brown paper. Well, cats are acutely aware of the dangers of electrical rheumatism and of course if you ever need to punish a cat you can just crumple the paper to make the sound of thunder. Do cats get rheumatism? Oh, yes, of course, Miss Simmons. Mr Wayne... We have been showing your cat pictures to our staff. They've been laughing, they've been <laughs> smiling. Tell them, Alicia, tell them I'm not lying. One of our typists, she took some of your pictures home to her kids and she said that they were running about on their hands and knees pretending to be cats. Pretending to be cats, how cute. And then and asking to have cats for their birthday. We're gonna get you out there, you're a personality. Wouldn't you say, Alicia, honey? You're Mr. Cat. Cat man. Cat man. Huh? Catman. Catman. 
Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, Taiki Watiti, Crystal Clark in The Electric Life of Louis Wayne, which is currently in cinemas. It's the story of the artist Louis Wayne, played by Cumberbatch, who popularised cats in Victorian England, bringing them from the alleyway into the living room as beloved pets. The film tells a tough and touching story of a genius who battled life's obstacles, including family responsibility, penury, mental illness and grief. And it has sparked an interest in the work of Louis Wayne at the Chris Beatles Gallery in London. This currently hosting an exhibition called Louis Wayne's Cats and Chris Beatles is also an expert on the work of Wayne and the author of a book called Louis Wayne's Cats and delighted to be joined by Chris on the programme this evening. Chris, um, first of all, uh, putting on your art expert hat, if you like, first of all, what is it about uh, Louis Wayne's work? You know, portraits, almost cartoonish portraits in some cases of cats engaged in all kinds of human behaviour from riding carriages, smoking, gambling, playing cards, I think, at another stage along the way. What is it about that, that particular part of his work that interests you? That is part of what interests me. That's the middle period when he achieved huge fame. That's the anthropomorphic cats, cats doing human things, expressing human emotions. But there's so much more to him than early on. He was very naturalistic. He's a very, very brilliant draftsman. And late on, when he was confined to an insane asylum, he produced works of great beauty, strong color, great intensity, full of idyllic landscapes, and utterly delightful. So there's all sorts of um, areas of cat art that can be enjoyed by by Wayne enthusiasts. And and, I mean, his cat art and his art, in fact, is only one aspect. It seems as if he was one of these polymaths, really, of the Victorian era. He, He could have gone several directions. He was highly intelligent. He was a highly intelligent, slight... Well, he was a paradox, really. He was very sociable hugely energetic and the film shows that you you put a little uh, clip out of his eccentricity but there was so much more to it than that he was a very intense very energetic um slightly willful man who had uh, an enormous talents he was a great sportsman he could play the piano um he he even boxed with jem mace the great fighter there was almost nothing that that man couldn't turn his hand to but he was taken up in a, in a treadmill of popularity with his cat pictures and really eventually had no time for anything else except to, to produce cat pictures in order to, to raise another fee to keep his sisters and his mother in the middle-class Edwardian style to which they'd become accustomed. You had it a role was a in very fact, stressful life in the end. Yeah, and and, and uh, that really took its toll on him, particularly towards the end of his life. You were involved in the making of the film, The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, working closely with Benedict Cumberbatch, particularly on Wayne's highly unusual and very talented technique and speed when it came to drawing. Maybe explain a little bit about that to us. Yes, he, he was. Um, he had great facility as a draftsman. He painted largely with his left hand. He signed Louis Wayne with his right hand, though sometimes he would switch. He could do mirror writing. He could um, paint with both hands at the same time. Um, and I think the, the, the writer and producer, Will Sharp and Benedict Cumberbatch, when they heard that, rather took and ran with that. And, and you see that in the film, that amazing um, dexterity of him painting with both left and right hands. I think Wayne probably did it. He was, a, he was very extraordinary at times and probably did it to show off. 
I think he was too serious an artist to do it when, when it came to producing commissioned work. He probably concentrated very hard with his left hand at that point. Um, I, I suppose he became known as the man who drew cats, but there's so much more, as you say, to him than that. But uh, in, in terms of becoming the cat illustrator, where, what brought him there? What was the pathway that brought him to that particular set of pictures and set of drawings? Well, he was a, a, a jobbing illustrator for all sorts of the new magazines in the 1880s. He was born in 1860, just to get a timeline. And he was... Um, taken up by the um, Sir Herbert Ingram, who is proprietor of the Illustrated London News. And at one point he asked him whether he could fill his double-page special Christmas issue. Mm. And at that time, Wayne had started painting cats, largely to amuse his new wife, who, um, as soon as they were married, was found to have breast cancer and would draw pictures of cats to amuse her when she was bedridden. And so he hitherto only doing poultry and dogs and all sorts of other animals for these magazines. He did a, a huge Christmas special with 150 cats um, over two full pages in Illustrated London News, which was a sensation. Mm. So at the age of 26, he was famous overnight for doing cats. And thereafter, he really never did anything but cats. The uh, demand for his cats was just overwhelming. You, you mentioned his wife there, a woman called Emily Richardson before she was married. She was a governess for his, for his sisters. And indeed, that relationship caused quite a... It was, it was considered scandalous that a man of his standing should marry a lowly governess. And she was 10 years his senior. Yes, the, um, it, it was a scandal. And, and sadly, the, none of the sisters or the mother attended the marriage. But from what we can tell from letters and and any recordings um the marriage was very happy very fulfilling and of course this this adds um mountains of sadness onto mm. the uh, premature death the film de- deals with that relationship with great empathy and great sensitivity and also with great entertainment because the days were very happy for a while yeah and the the, the emily character is played by claire foy in the film as well but let, let us tweet one of his uh, illustrations now and it, it links directly into that that particular relationship we'll tweet the picture of of peter is, is the cat that's involved here at rte arena if you want to look at the the image that chris beatles is telling us about now uh, little black and white pat that you, uh, cat that you couldn't help but love even if you weren't a cat lover i think chris although i believe you are a cat lover i am a cat lover i've always had a, a, a lot of cats and i've been dealing in louis wayne now for for uh, 40 years and collecting them for over 45 years so i'm very much involved with with wayne mm. wayne and i have um come back to fame together <laughs> and and that that picture that one that picture that people can see now on at our tea arena uh, the, the, the picture of peter this is very much the early style or the beginnings of the cat period in wayne's work yes well well spotted that's very typical of that um grisaille style that black and white style of the early illustration i've never found out quite where that was illustrated but it was probably in the illustrated london news mm. or the graphic and it is certainly a portrait of their beloved cat, Peter, or as um, Emily called her, Peter the Great. <laughs> yeah, uh, I put up another uh, tweet at this stage, off for the holidays in style and comfort. And this really is, they're all, it's almost like a political satire or satire of some kind in this image. At RTE Arena, if you want to look at it, maybe you describe what we can see in this particular drawing, 
Chris. Well, this is another area of, of his great fame. The publishers and um, entrepreneurs would line up to use his services. And this is a, a huge advert um, produced for Jackson's of Piccadilly Outfitters. And it shows an enormous number of cats going off on a, on a jaunt. It's a very, very large, spectacular piece of artwork. And I think that would have taken him probably... A, a week or two, um, which is for a man who has such speed and would produce 600 pictures a year, that would have been a major work for him. Uh, and we mentioned that the film is called The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, and it kind of brings us into a, a difficult and sad aspect of his life, uh, particularly towards the end of his life, but this seems to have in some ways haunted him all along the way. What does electricity mean in the world of Louis Wayne? It, it can be described in... Um, figuratively because a lot of his cats were very spiky and agitated and he believed that there was a charge that came through cats he believed that some human beings had it he believed that emily um, his wife had it and peter and emily um, with different charges would exchange this electricity he he found electricity in almost anything this is taken up strongly with 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 recurring dreams and, and thunder and lightning in the film. And it is um, a, a motif throughout his life uh, of spikiness, of charge, mm. of, of rapidity and energy and lines that, that go like lightning through his work. And I, particularly put- you see this in the later works. And I think you're putting up another yeah. a, a psychedelic one, which is typical of schizophrenic art but with him it is more patterned because of his background yeah let's just put up an abstract cat then on it at rt arena an abstract cat is the image that we're looking at almost like a kaleidoscopic vision here yes those those kaleidoscopic fractal images are, are generally typical of of gross schizophrenic art but but also there is this overlying experience of him um with a family that produced um, Turkish carpets, ecclesiastical fabrics. So there's a background of, mm. of that type of patterning in his life. And, and finally then we'll put up an image that shows that it wasn't all cats, in fact. We're looking at a, an image now of, of basically of three, four, five, six actually, is it four, five very large birds in a very colourful landscape. Where does this particular uh, piece come from? This dates from 1930 to 1939, time of his death. In those years, he was in Knapsbury, which was a large asylum where he had um, great comforts and was treated very well and was allowed to paint as much as he liked. And it does indicate quite a a sort of happy end. that There are many idyllic, bucolic, sweet, pretty landscapes like this, which does indicate some tranquility in his, his later years. And interestingly, the film uses it brilliantly as the very last scene as they subsume Wayne into this, this final um, happy ending, remembering his, his marriage. Yeah, yeah and, and that's, that is a beautiful image at the end of the film. I guess the film has played directly into this, this new interest in, in Louis Wayne, and that must be very helpful for you, particularly with this current exhibition, Chris. I am certainly not complaining. I've already found myself in a dominant position because everyone's terrified of buying Wayne apart from me um, because there are thousands and thousands of forgeries out there. And as the price rises, so the number of forgeries go up. And so I get into this tyrannical position now, I'm afraid, whereby no one wants to 
buy a whale unless they've had it checked out by me. Oh, no bad thing. More I business. I'm not complaining. <laughs> Lovely to have spoken with you this evening. That's Chris Beatles there. And The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, the film currently in cinemas. The exhibition, Louis Wayne's Cats, is running at the Chris Beatles Gallery in London. And the book, Louis Wayne's Cats, always also written by Chris Beatles, with a new introduction by Benedict Cumberbatch, is currently available. 99 years ago last Tuesday, a Russian aristocrat stepped off a boat in New York docks, went to the theatre district, unveiled a revolutionary theory that forever changed the art of acting. His name was Konstantin Stanislavski. He brought with him what he called the system. Stanislavski's impact was so great, it's hard to measure. The system paved the way for method acting, designed to assist an actor in researching, reser- uh, rehearsing and moulding a character with greater authenticity than audiences had ever seen before. And Stanislavski's visit to New York inspired the setting up of the legendary Actors Studio, studio whose alumni include James Dean, Paul Newman, Marilyn Monroe, Sidney Poitier, Al Pacino, Jane Fonda, Julia Roberts, Bradley Cooper and many more. Joining us to discuss Stanislavski's le- a legacy is lecturer at the National Film School, Stephen Benedict. Um, what was it that prompted Stanislavski? We, I suppose we have to go back to Russia and Europe really mm. for this. What prompted him to do what he did with this system? It's a very loaded question. What mm. you're really saying is, what was his motivation? Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> OK. Um, well, the thing was that uh, there was a very, very important event that happened in the in the middle 19th century. What happened that then was the series of revolutions right across Europe in 1848. And that ushered in a whole new artistic movement of realism. And you saw it in literature, you saw it in painting. And in theatre, you saw it in Chekhov's plays, The Cherry Orchard, for example, or Ibsen's The Dollhouse. And because the new writers were improbing their characters to examine the psychological process, the reasons mm. why they behaved. Stanislavski was looking at that and saying, we need new preparation to to realise these characters on stage. And so what he did was he ushered in a new method, a new system to equip the actor to prepare uh, instead of representing the emotion, which was the typical way in which um, actors would would perform on stage. It was very histrionic. It was very melodramatic and full of grandiose gestures. And when Stanislavski came along, he said, we've got to make it much more real and much more vivid. I suppose what, what we were getting in the plays was plays about real people in very real situations. So therefore, the performances had to be very real to match that. Precisely. And, you know, it was to make sure that the audience who were who be coming into the theatre discussing the political issues of the day and the huge turmoil and the change in society, they were looking for something much more real on the stage. Yeah. Okay, well, let's get on to the whole idea of um, the, the system and its links into method acting, I suppose, yeah. which most people will, 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 will know the term if they don't know exactly what it is. So we have a compilation here of some very famous actors delivering famous lines from famous movies. And some of these actors might be described as method actors <laughs> and some of them might not be described as method actors. So let's have a listen. You can, you can maybe tick off which, who do you think is a method actor, who do you think <laughs> is not a method actor? And you try to recognise some of the voices as we go along as well. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this sun of York. One son is all I've got, and you can blot him out and call me cruel. Playwrights teach us nothing about love. They make it pretty, they make it comical, or they make it lust. They cannot make it true. I'm loud, and I'm vulgar, and I wear the pants in the house because somebody's got to... Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? 
I didn't mean to do that. Please, continue. Nobody does vegetables like me. I did an evening of vegetables off Broadway. I did the best tomato, the best Look, cucumber. I, I did know. an endive salad that knocked the critics on their ass. I just remember what Huey Long said, that every man's a king and I'm the king around here. And don't you forget it. Oh, I see. So the white man give you a couple of stripes. Next thing you know, you holler and order and everybody around. You ain't nothing but the white man's dog. And it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when, in fact, you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. And if I find that you are trying to corrupt my firstborn child, I will bring you down, baby. I will bring you down to Chinatown. Well, you give us the final actor in, yeah, in, in the piece of music, for yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, Robert De Niro, the final voice we hired yeah. in there. I mean, Catherine Hepburn was there, Laurence Olivier, starting the whole thing off. Yeah. Definitely not a method actor, Laurence Olivier, it's safe to N- say. No, definitely not. But what, you know, the, the, the first group that you heard there, Laurence Olivier, I think there was Judy Dench in there mm. as well. There was Catherine Hepburn and Liz Taylor. And also Samuel L. Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson is a fantastic character actor, but the first four that we mentioned re- rely solely on imagination. That's, that's what they bring to the, bring to the roles. They don't uh, go through the method, at, a method as approach at all. But the second wave that we heard there, we heard Dustin Hoffman and we heard De Niro and we heard Denzel and Merrill and De Niro. Um, they definitely are great practitioners and great advocates of, of the method. So, you know, the, the thing is, sometimes you have a, a, a non-method actor coming up against a method actor in the same cast. So, uh, Marathon Man, Laurence Olivier and yeah, and Dustin pe- Hoffman. Pe- people often recall that event and I think they, tell, they misinterpret it because for me, the way I see it is, it was Laurence Olivier trying to put down Dustin Hoffman. Well, we should explain the event. Well, what happened was that there's, this, there's a scene where Laurence Olivier's character is going to drill through Dustin Hoffman's tooth and to extract not only the tooth, but information from him. And Hoffman, in preparation for the role, stayed up all night and ran around the block three or four times and exhausted himself to prepare for the situation. And, and Laurence Olivier arrives on set and my dear boy, have you tried acting? And which was a very, very condescending dismissal of the, the preparation that Hoffman was, was delivering because they simply had two different approaches. And Hoffman was respectful of, of uh, mm. Olivier. But I have to say, uh, one of... You know, there's different approaches to acting, but sometimes you get a method actor coming up against a method actor. Sparks can fly. And Dustin Hoffman made a movie with Meryl Streep in 1979. And Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah. And it's a, you know, it's a movie about a divorce, very, very contentious divorce. And in order to prompt Meryl Streep to give the, give the response that he wanted from her, what happened was just before they made the movie, uh, Meryl Streep's boyfriend, John Cazal, John Cazal of The Godfather, The Godfather Part Two, Dog Day Afternoon and The Deer Hunter fame, he, um, he died of cancer. And there's a scene in the, on the witness, in the courtroom on the witness stand when Meryl Streep is on the witness stand and Dustin Hoffman started to goad her and started talking to her about her relationship with John Cazal in the most personal terms, in the most offensive of ways. And she turned, literally, she turned white. But she didn't, she didn't shout back and she didn't lose her temper. She said very calmly, she said, if you want to use method techniques like emotional recall, which is what method mm. acting is about, if you want to use emotional techniques like emotional recall, use it on yourself, not me. 
So my point there, Sean, is that there is madness to the method. <laughs> yeah, okay? yeah. You can go far too far. And, you know, Hoffman is a terrific actor, but phenomenally competitive, which I can't understand because acting is not competitive. It's collaborative. Team game. For sure it is a team game. Let's have a listen to Meryl Streep, one of the great advocates for method acting and what motivates, again, we're back to that word. Yeah. That's the idea of motivation. What motivates her, no matter what act, what role she's preparing for? I've thought a lot about the power of empathy. In my work, it's the current that connects me and my actual pulse to a fictional character in a made-up story. It allows me to feel pretend feelings and sorrows and imagined pain. And my nervous system is sympathetically wired and it conducts that current to you sitting in a movie theater and to the woman sitting next to you and to her friend so that we all feel that it's happening to us at the same time. Meryl Streep there. I often think that when you hear an actor describing what they do, Mm. it kind of pulls up. (laughs) You just want to see it and not even know that it's acting. Is is, is that at the heart of method, really? Or is that just good acting? Well, you know, the thing is, when you listen to an actor in interview talking about them, their craft um, I think they're a little bit reluctant to re- not only to reveal mm. the true secrets of it, but, but to talk to and uh, talk about acting as passionately as they do in private with other actors because they're aware that it comes across as incredibly pretentious and you know um, ivory tower uh, scenario and where audiences just go on to go, want to go in and be entertained but the truth of the matter is when we go to the movies we really want to be moved and when an actor connects with the character through the method technique we feel it I think all the more. I'm not saying for a second that I'm not moved by Judy Dench. Yeah, she's a superb actress and a superb um, interpreter of the text all the time. But you know, actors when they do pull down, when they when they do drop the veil, it is they're standard sort of standing naked in terms of the explanation for it. It's, it's a very very private process for actors. I think actors are incredibly brave when it comes to making a movie. I think they're the most important people on the set because the audiences go to movies not to, fa- not to have fantastic landscapes and look at the costumes. They go to be moved by human faces. Emotional recall is one of the techniques that you referred mm. to there in terms of Stanislavski. What, how, did it, how did Stanislavski's um, acting system change when it came to method acting in America? Right. Well, you know, he, as you said, he arrived off the docks and he presented his, his uh, theories in 1923. But it was a good while for them to percolate into cinema. And one of the mm. reasons why they took a while to percolate into cinema was because cinema was still silent back in the 20s, which means that the acting was all very gestural. And it's almost like mime, which was mm. very, very far removed from what Stanislavski wanted to do and then it sort of uh, it took a while then to percolate into American theatre it wasn't until the 40s um, with Death of a Salesman by um, Arthur Miller but also more specifically in 1947 it was Tennessee Williams uh, Streetcar Named Desire that production with Jessica Tandy as Blanche Dubois and Marlon Brando as you said as Stanley Kowalski that was the turning point because all of a sudden they had the right text they had a writer who was absorbing the ideas of Stanislavski and putting it onto the characters um, I suppose the other, when we, Brando was the big name that you would think of, but in contemporary terms, Daniel Day-Lewis remaining in, in, mm. in character. We often heard that about My Left Foot uh, and indeed Joaquin Phoenix losing £52 for the Joker. Um, what about the opposite of that? People like Anthony Hopkins, yeah. Francis McDormand, Judy Dench, who don't do any of that. Yeah, well, the thing is, it's not binary, OK? It's not to method or not to method. It's, mm. not, it's, not, it's not sort of that idea. Because there are, other schools, uh, there are other schools of thought and other theories, like the Meisner technique, for example, which asks the actor not to focus on themselves or their character, but to focus on the other actor, to listen. Now, acting 
is reacting. Acting is listening to what's being what's going on around you. So um, the Meisner technique and the practitioners of the Meisner technique would include probably most famously James Galdonfini from The Sopranos. You've got also got Viola Davis, Sandra Bullock, um, Michelle Pfeiffer. So they they operate by listening right. to the, listening to the, their fellow actors. And let's listen to Viola Davis uh, describe that particular technique. Whatever the actor gives me, I use. I don't go home and prepare a performance and then come to the set and use that performance that I prepared at home. I prepare myself for the fact that the actor may give me something completely different. You got to say yes to your partner. If they're giving you a line in a certain way, guess what? You got to get up off your A double snakes and use that. There's a new way to say that (laughs) particular word, Uh, Viola Davis there. So she really is talking about this idea. Listen to the, what the person in front of you says, respond to that. and That's how you do the scene. Yeah, and that's, that allows the actor to be alive into the reality of that given moment. And it means then that if an actor decides to do a different line reading in the next different take, mm. they can be alive to that, to, to respond in that particular moment as opposed to re- repeatedly giving the same performance take by take by take, which is disastrous for an editor and disastrous for a director. What does, what does American film acting owe to Stanislavski? Um, natu- realism and naturalism. I think we're now moving into the era of naturalism. I mean, now, of course, if you look at Nicolas Cage, okay, you're on to a different, yeah. different scenario in total. But the thing is to, be, to, to bring it down and down and down. You know, Robert De Niro gave an interview a couple of years ago on Charlie Rose on American television. And he says an actor should do less and less and less. And one of the reasons for that is because of the close-up the camera can come in very, very close. And if you are too big, it's yeah. histrionic. Well, let's listen to De Niro. It's simpler than you think. And it's very hard for actors. And I get caught up in that myself where you have to do more, do something. And you don't have to do anything, nothing. And that says more allows the audience to read into it as opposed to you telling them what they should feel. And actors tend at times to try and so they have to give it something and they don't have to give it anything and it'll take care of itself. And Robert De Niro does nothing. It's a whole different one. <laughs> Let's face it. Just as, as we finish up, uh, Stephen, I know you wanted to mention, talk about Peter Bogdanovich. We spoke with him briefly earlier in the programme and, and played a clip from Paper Moon, which is your favourite, I believe, of his films. Of his films, yeah. yeah. I'm going to watch it tonight. Um, it's fantastic. I think what Bogdanovich is passing continues the long and slow farewell to the great directors that changed Hollywood in the 70s. We've already lost Robert Altman, Hal Ashby, and heaven forbid, but Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, George Lucas, John Milius, Paul Schrader, Martin Scorsese. I mean, it, these are the people who, you know, if we were to catapult ourselves 200 mm. years into the future, we're talking about the likes of Donatello, Gerberti, um, um Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, they're in those, they're in the that Ninja category. Turtles, the Ninja Turtles, the five, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. But I think the thing to, what, what, I was listening to Donald earlier, and no disrespect to what Donald said, he is correct until a certain point, but for the, the last picture show, that movie owes an enormous debt of gratitude to a French master called Jean Renoir. The, the, the thing about Renoir, he's a fantastic humanist, and there's very, very few villains in any of his films. And if you look at the last picture show, there is no villain. The villain is time. And his movie from 1939, The, the Rules of the Game, it, everybody has their reasons for misbehaving or doing whatever they're going to do. And what, what, um, what Bogdanovich did was he infused phenomenal humanity into that film. It should have won Best Picture in 1971. It's far better than The French Connection. 
All right, the villain is time. You're absolutely right because it's just going up to, I'm just passing eight o'clock and that is our lot for this Thursday evening. Leah Murphy and Paula Shields research. Janice Furphy was the broadcast coordinator. Mark McGrath was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Keshi. Talk to you tomorrow night, seven o'clock here on RT Radio 1.